All right. Okay, we're rolling whenever you guys are. <laughs> okay, here we go. In 1957, the most dangerous vulgar thing in music was Elvis's hips. Kids, ask your grandparents. Or better yet, maybe you should YouTube it. It's probably there. You might have noticed, though, that we've moved on quite a bit from that. Just just a bit. And on this edition of the soundboard, we'll explore exactly how far that line's moved. <coughs> and we, 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 actually, we wonder if we can actually be shocked anymore. From needcoffee.com, this is The Soundboard, episode 34. I'm Jam Tapley. We'll also be looking at upcoming releases, festival lineups, the recent Rock Hall of Fame inductions, and we'll also be looking back at the careers of George Jones and Phil Ramone. Stay tuned for that, among other distractions. Along for the ride, as usual, is uh, writer and host of KDXX's Justice Position, uh, Mr. Rob Levy. How are you, sir? Hello. Hello. Uh, also joining us is writer and chief bottle washer of meatcoffee.com, Mr. Widget Walls. Howdy, sir. Howdy, sir. Uh, it is spring. We are further into spring. Uh, some people would say we are on the very crux of summer. Um, but, uh, it is still pollinating. We are still <coughs> dealing with the, uh, the pollination of, of the planet. The yeah. tree sex is continuing. And, uh, and so is the, uh, so are the releases. And, uh, we're looking at the stuff that's coming out in May. What, uh, if anything, looks good to you guys? Uh, well, for, for May, uh, first I'd like to point out that I like to have my summers with the crux cut off. Uh, ah, yes. see, see, that's with jelly or without? Uh, it depends on the jelly. Ah. Um, now, if it's, <laughs> if it's green jelly, then that's okay. Um, sorry, I was trying to keep it musical. Uh, well, I mean, I'll let someone else say, say the obvious thing that's coming up on May 21st, but beyond that, um, I have not heard the new tricky stuff yet, except for one track, which sounded like a remake of Max and Quay. And I was like, well, why wouldn't I just go listen to Max and Quay? So I'm a little, uh, dubious. Um, and I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a little interested in the fact that I didn't know Allison Chains had a new album coming out. And, Me too. And, 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 well, here's my question. In 50 words or less, am I pleased or frightened? Um. <laughs> I, I, they have something out. They've had a single out for quite a while now. Um, oh, okay. they've, they've had a couple of songs out that they had people do submit images for videos for. Right. Uh, the thing that Amanda Palmer was doing on her tour where she had people send them images and then she made stuff. Allison Chains did the same thing and released a couple of YouTube videos for tracks. It sounds, I think it sounds good so far. Okay. Well, from, from, from what I've heard so far. I will go check it out. I would, I would love some more good Allison Chains, but. Uh, but yeah, for, for May, that's, that's pretty much all, uh, all I, I drug up except for the 21st. So. What about the, uh, Queen's Bestowday Trekker? Well, that's June, isn't that's it? June. That oh. is June. We'll, right. we'll, we'll talk about that on the next time. Your time still exists to me, sorry. Yes, <laughs> no. You're still in the center of the TARDIS, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in. I, I'm in the ashtray of the TARDIS. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Have you found any bottle caps? Uh, no, no, but there's a lot of butt ends. Ah, that's good, that's mm. good. So, uh, we should just probably just skip to it. Um, I'm going to mention, uh, well, the Airborne Talks event does have a record coming out after a bunch of EPs uh, called Such Hot Blood that's coming out uh, in, uh, I think this, this coming uh, April 30th. So, uh, that'll be out. And, uh, yeah, pretty much, uh, we're looking at uh, May 21st, which is... <coughs> 
a bit of bit of an actual genuine chart battle. We usually don't have records that get anywhere near the top of the Billboard charts. But uh, May 21st is uh, is quite an interesting date because not only is it Daft Punk's random access memory, uh, but it's also, and I believe, and, and I, I'm not looking at any notes on this, but I believe they are the last arena emo band standing. Uh, 30 Seconds to Mars have a new album coming out, which could possibly threaten Daft Punk's total annihilation of the planet. Uh, so, um, first of all, I think we're all going to go with Daft Punk on this one, but... Um, yep. Who? Uh, two guys. Helmets. <laughs> and, and by the way, who knew that the, uh, the uh, brand new uh, sound of Daft Punk was a disco record from 1978? Was that... Did that uh, I, I kind of saw that coming. <laughs> Well, it's Nile Rogers, though, so you can't really it is, blame. It is, it is. Well, considering Rob is in the middle of the TARDIS, that means that he has access to all kinds of uh, yes. being able to yeah. see the future. <laughs> no, if there was ever anyone that deserved to like have a sort of renaissance late in their life, it's Nile Rogers. It is, yeah. I mean, outside of producing like all these great records in the eighties, I mean, he produced like the Thompson Twins and a bunch of these eighties bands. Uh, the um, Notorious album, I believe. Yeah, and, you know, he, he like, produced all these other bands, but then he's sort of got a reputation as, like, a go-to producer. And he's got – it is by no coincidence that his book has come out roughly the same time as his single with Daft Punk has come out as well. Yeah. So. But, uh, I mean, yeah, re- go ahead. I was going to say, if hearing more disco means I have to hear less house, I'm fine with that. <laughs> wow. at least it's rooted wow. in soul music. Okay. Well, well, there, well, we know where Rob draws the line. <laughs> Sorry. That's great. I mean, a lot of that disco stuff is really suited, uh, you know, steeped, steeped in like sort of R and B, like traditional R and B. So, which is actual instrumentation. Yeah. Which which is is quite nice to actually see, you know, on something, which is nice. And at first, uh, I thought, you know, what's going on with that punk? But then I thought about that, and I'm like, you know, it kind of makes perfect sense because they're probably the closest thing to chic now that we have. That that so. is that that's a that's an interesting statement. And everyone knows there's only two records that ever get sampled, anything by Barry White or anything by Chic. So That is true. <laughs> that is true. Or James I, Brown. I think so. if uh, if if you're doing a comic book about the futuristic version of Chic, it would be called Chic twenty ninety nine. That'd be awesome. It's just something for the obscure comic geeks out there. Uh well, I was gonna, say, I was gonna do a new universe joke, so you were there. Oh yeah, I was definitely. You had there the newer then. reference. I was, I was, I was definitely there. I was gonna go new universe. Anyway, um, Widge, uh, Def Funk, what are you thinking? Uh, I'll, I'll listen to it. Hell yeah. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking as far as if you mean what am I thinking? I'm thinking I want to hear it. If you're thinking what's gonna happen between them and 30 seconds, I think it's gonna be Daft Punk because I look at it this way. <laughs> Everybody, no, I mean, seriously, if we're talking, if we're talking yeah. Mortal Kombat side scrolling fighting throwdown, then I think, uh, Daft Punk, not only, everybody who buys 30 Seconds to Mars, they're gonna buy Daft Punk anyway. So you're automatically <coughs> negating the competition. And Daft Punk have a better finishing move. They, they, uh, pull off their helmets, light them on fire, and throw them. That's, that's good. Well, it was, and that was also John Carpenter trick, wasn't it? Yes, when John Carpenter had a band, that was how he, <laughs> he had his finishing move. And for those who don't believe me, 
go Google Big Trouble in Little China theme song, John Carpenter, and you'll see the music video. Oh, and you will, want, you will want to light your own head on fire. Ow. We all did our homework after the Rick Springfield incident, didn't we? Yeah. Oh, this is the week Rick Ridge kills me. <laughs> oh, my God. But yes, coming in June. Coming in wow. June. We'll probably talk about this in the next show. But coming in June is uh, Queens <laughs> of the Stone Age, uh, among others. Um, although Queens of the Stone Age has everyone on it. So uh, we'll, we'll discuss that uh, more coming up in June. Okay, so um, I think the last time, I may have been the last time I hosted the show. Um, although I think I said, did say this on a November show, so it may not have been the one I hosted. Bad enough. People in comments, tell me. Uh, but uh, I believe I called this uh, Glass and Berry 2013 headliner, uh, Rolling Stones. Uh, although, according to the JPEG, it was Arctic Monkeys. Well, yes, yes but, you know, Rolling Stones. <laughs> but uh, I believe I called that. But Well, it's a two-night thing, so probably the Friday night headliner is probably the Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, there you go. And the Saturday night is probably the Rolling Stones, so they put yep. the Monkeys first because they play on Friday. Yep. Yep, that makes yep. sense. Uh, but the Glastonbury lineup breaks down besides the Monkees and Rolling Stones, uh, Mumford and Sons, uh, Primal Scream, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Vampire Weekend, uh, Vaccines, Elvis Costello, uh, Denny Rogers, which, okay, um, Ben Howard, Rufus Wainwright, um, and I'm just gonna go down, I'm looking down the list here, and the thing that I'm not seeing, which is the thing that the article pointed out, not a whole lot of Britpop reformed Britpop bands. We're all over here. Yeah, which is which is a departure <laughs> from previous Glastonbury's. Do you think the year off maybe woke people up to the idea of of maybe maybe that 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 moment's over, or is it just that you're right that they're all over here now? Um, it, well, it's over in Britain. I mean, that whole sort of bounce of like reformed bands that was like a short burst and, and sort of died over there very quickly. Yeah, here it's more of a bigger thing because. Uh, the Stone Roses can cash in, and probably the Happy Mondays might cash in a little bit, and that's well, about it. Well, that's also true in the case of the Stone Roses, because, correct me if I'm wrong, they almost didn't get over here anyway in the first place, right? Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're, they, they, there's an audience they can make up for who didn't get to see them when they, were, <laughs> when they didn't tour before. But to be fair, the Roses just did a huge stadium, soccer stadium tour of Europe. Yeah. So they don't need to play Glastonbury. That's true. I That's mean, they true. did it really smart. We're like, okay, yeah, we can play Glastonbury and play, you know, an hour, or we can do these huge events, get a ton of money, and then rest of then go to the states and get, oh yeah, a ton of money. So, uh, so meanwhile, in uh, it, meanwhile in America, uh, Lollapalooza has announced its lineup, uh, and I believe this is still in Chicago again in Grand Park, uh, as has been the case uh, for a couple of years now. It. it has, am I correct on that? It's been yeah. Chicago Grand Park. Yeah. Uh, so The Cure, Mumford and Sons. Oh, there they are again. Uh, the Killers, uh, Nine Inch Nails, who are also playing a lot of festivals. Uh, Phoenix, Postal Service, Vampire Weekend. There they are again. New Order. Uh, Queens of the Stone Age, uh, who I believe played the, uh, the, uh, Brazil, uh, yeah. Lollapalooza. Uh, The National, uh, and, uh, quite a few others. Yeah, Alt-J, there they are again. Alt-J, yeah. Yeah, so two things. First of all, I believe is that 
is that the North American tour thing that we were waiting for? Because is there going to be a North American? Is there an American tour after that date? Because I don't believe I've seen any other American dates for, for the cure. For the cure. Oh, no. They've been doing a bunch of Canadian dates, and they were kind of tap dancing around American dates, and this seems to be the only one so far. Now, well, wouldn't it be a situation where they're waiting to announce it until all the ticket sales are done for Lollapalooza for all those yeah. cure people who are? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's possible. Entirely possible. Uh, the other thing I'm noticing is, and, and I think we've already crossed this bridge a couple of times already, but it seems like, particularly in the festivals this year, uh, that it, and this is something we've run into a little bit last year, but more probably prevalent this year is that a lot of the same bands are playing the same shows. Yeah. And does that become a problem when a lot of these festivals are trying to diversify and carve out an identity if you're booking the well, same bands? Yes and no. I mean, well, two things. First, getting back to The Cure. Which iteration of The Cure is it going to be? Because I think that's the key. You well, know, probably, you got, probably the current, probably the current one, which is whatever current one it is, which is you know, which is what, what it was on the last album. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if they really want to cash in, he brings Walt Tolhurst and 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 more, you know, Paul and everybody with him. That's that's where they cash in. As if it's that sort of disintegration era lineup, that's where they cash in. But moving on, um, I think what happens is. With the festivals, because like we have a festival here called Blue Fest, and they're going to announce the lineup Tuesday. But odds are it's going to be a lot of the same bands in Lollapalooza that are also yeah. on Coachella, because a lot of yeah. the, this, a lot of the same booking companies are handling multiple festivals now. So as instead of having a proper tour, you have festival dates over in the states. It's finally sort of happening, and a lot of that is because it's much easier for a label to put the national, uh, you know, who have a new record coming out. Put out the new record, play Lollapalooza, get the bounce off of the Lollapalooza show and the new material, and use that to thrust, the, thrust them into, you know, the late summer, and then they tour smaller venues. Um, it sort of does two things. One, it's a high-profile gig for all the artists. Two, it lets them sort of fine-tune their set, uh, because if they're playing a 45-minute set, they can mostly play new material, sort of test drive it, fine-tune it, and then take the real stuff out for the tour. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, the fan ripoff, you know, where if the National play Lollapalooza and unveil 10 new songs, and they don't all go over, they can say, oh, we're playing songs from a new album. And everybody's like, oh, it's songs from a new album. So it's a couple, I mean, it's a couple of those. But I also think that it's, it's also cheaper because if you play Lollapalooza, Coachella, and, you know, Bonnaroo, you're probably reaching as many or more people as like a five city tour. With, with half the expense. That's true. Um, and you're you're always looking forward to the uh, small club, smaller club shows they play in and around the Lollapalooza area. Yeah, I mean the thing is the thing is that, like if you're if you're going to be going to Lollapalooza, right? Yeah. Um, the best thing to do is go to Chicago the week of Lollapalooza. Uh, well, actually the week before, because once the every, all these bands they're going west or going east and then going west are coming west to the east or east to the west, they sort of play dates in between before Lollapalooza. So you might be able to get a band playing in, you know, Iowa or Detroit or Milwaukee before a gig at Lollapalooza for a smaller club show just to pick up some extra money, and it also just happens to be on their way, uh, which is a nice benefit. The other thing you can do is if you're in Chicago, a lot of these bands will book 
their own shows that night. So you could say, say Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, who are playing at 2 in the afternoon at Lollapalooza, you could go either the night before or the night after or later that same night and go see them do a headline gig in a bar. So it's very advantageous to the bands if they're already in a city and playing a large gig. It gives them the opportunity sort of to double dip, kind of. So, I mean, it has its advantages because they have that hype of going to Lollapalooza because if they play the gigs before Lollapalooza on their way, it's a treat to their fans before Lollapalooza. And if they play any gigs, you know, that in that city before or after, then it's a special treat to their fans. So it's sort of this uh, full cash cow disguised as, you know, a gift to the fans, which, hey, if you're in a band, if you can play four shows in a city in a day or two days and make that much money, knock yourself out. You know, I mean, you have the potential to do, you know, your Lollapalooza set, an in-store, and then a regular gig of one or two nights. That's an awful lot of money, and that goes in your pocket. Yeah. So, and it's, and, it's, I, and I also wonder, in the case of The Cure, if it is a classic lineup of The Cure and not a, I guess, whoever played the, on the last record, yeah. I'm wondering if they're starting to make some sort of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame campaign. Yeah, I don't know. Because that seems usually when bands start to reform our, our, our previous lineups come out of the woodwork, we, we, we are kind of aware that the, a, a some sort of a campaign is being assembled. But I, I wouldn't see Robert Smith as, as trying to do yeah. that. But Well, the other thing, too, about the festival season, too, is that if you're a band and you play those, like, any, like you know, if you play South by Southwest or if you play Austin City Limits or – the Austin Psych Fest or Lollapalooza or, you know, Glastonbury, any of these, in addition to having, you know, a ton of bands there that other bands would want to see and hang out, you can get the most number of rock journalists and bloggers in one place. Yeah. Um, so that also helps from a promotion standpoint because you've got, you've got Rolling Stone, you've got Spin, you know, you've got Alternative Press all in one, all in one spot, you know, so easily your one show could generate you 15 to 20 reviews. And you're not comping out tickets, whereas if you comp out tickets for your own small club show, it it tends to hurt. But if it's on a, like part of a Lollapalooza thing, they're seeing your set, but you're not really taking the hit on it for the press tickets. Yeah. So, just a thought. Yeah, and uh, just something real quick I wanted to throw in, because we have yet to hear anything about Austin City Limits, which is the end of the of the tunnel, I, I believe, in, uh, in, in, in September. I believe. Um, I believe they have announced uh, the uh, the Tomorrow World Festival because we had Counterpoint in Atlanta, which was a big uh, electronic dance yeah. festival last year. Uh, so I believe uh, Tomorrow World we're getting in Atlanta this year, which is the uh, Tomorrowland uh, spinoff. <laughs> so uh, they're moving that. So bring on the drums, I suppose. Okay, so uh, this is about the pocket of the show where we uh, look back at the careers of people we've lost recently, <clears throat> and uh, we will start with a biggie, gentlemen, uh, Mr. George Jones. Well, we were almost in the clear this month, because your know. initial, your initial uh, email was was pretty scant on, on uh, <laughs> the roll call of the dead, but yeah. uh, you could argue that... John, that uh, George Jones was the most, you could argue, most important voice in country music since Hank Williams. You could make that argument. I uh, could argue he's the template for the modern country music. 
especially for crossover. Yeah. Um, you can also say, you know, outside of being just an amazing country music performer who toured right up until, you know, his death. Yeah. Um, you have heard his songs, but don't even know them because his songwriting is pretty, is pretty, pretty stellar. Yeah. And he's just one of these guys that always toured. I mean, he toured a lot. Um, he's sort of, I think now probably the last of the old school country guys. I don't listen to a whole lot of country. Um, what I listen to tends to be the old, the sort of that old guard, you know? Yeah. Um, because it's, uh, it's steeped in a lot of other things. And I think George Jones is sort of the last lineage to, you know, Hank Williams and Farron Young and Johnny Cash and those, and those kinds of people. I mean, sort of the older balladeers. Yeah. And, um, that's kind of sad. I mean, he's one of the most significant voices in country music of the last, you know, half century. So having, having said that, it's very sad. I mean, we lose all these really great people all the time and you have heard George Jones. You just don't know it. I mean, I didn't really realize until I went back and researched this. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's him. Oh yeah, that's him. Oh yeah, that's him. And I'm just kind of like, wow, because I, I listened to some of his records, but I didn't listen you know, to a lot of them. I don't have a great familiarity with his catalog, but I do know that he is one of those people that would come through a city and, uh, you know, in this day and age for, you know, a contemporary country singer who's probably past his late sixties to sell out of town, every yeah. town, you know, in like less than an hour, every town he goes. That's yeah. pretty amazing. See, the two things I thought of when, when I first found out about this, uh, two things I, th I thought of was, first, um, you you all familiar with the story about the tractor, right? Was it a tractor or a lawnmower? It was a lawnmower, yeah. But okay. it was a, yeah. But uh, the uh, the story about uh, his wife hiding the keys to all the vehicles, so when he wanted to go get something to drink, he uh, had to borrow the lawnmower and take it to the uh, the liquor store. Yeah, yeah, I knew that one, yeah. That was that's fantastic. I always when I, when I think rock star stories, that just slips in. Um, and the other thing, weirdly, the other thing I thought of um, was Elvis Costello's almost blue album, uh, which uh, was the country one. For those of you trying to figure out which one that is, uh, right in the middle of uh, right in the middle of his career, he decided to do a uh, a country record. And uh, one of the reasons he did that was so he could have an excuse to record something with uh, George Jones. Which uh, actually didn't make the record. It was in the bonus cuts. Uh, which so that was interesting. I always felt that was an interesting uh, album. Um, but his career goes. Uh, I, I I think you you think of George Jones. You think of you know. I think you think of the '60s '70s ballads, particularly the ones with Tammy Wynette. Yeah. And um, even before that, he. Uh, Slightly before that, he did have actually a successful run of sort of rockabilly, uh, rockabilly singles. Yeah. Uh, before he even, even back in the fifties, before he even got to that. And I thought that was interesting as well. Um, I also look at, um, sort of the crossover that he had because a lot of the stuff he did do, particularly the 60s, 70s ballads, uh, actually crossed over into the pop chart. Yeah. Um, which I think is, uh, like I said, the, the, just the blueprint for uh guys like George Strait and Garth Brooks and 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 that that second gen of like country guys who crossed over and you know country pop 
in general that crossed over kind of did it off the back of George Jones ballads. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I find that interesting as well. Well put. I think we lost Tuffley. Hang on. Okay. Tuffley uh, back? Yeah, I think uh, I think I may have been lost for a second there. You you lost, but amazingly, you finished the sentence and then were lost. It was like you put a cap on it and then dropped the mic and left. It was great. Yeah. It was like it was like ABC News when they fade to black after something really serious. <laughs> yes. Uh. Yeah. The Kurt Loader. The uh, yeah. Kurt Loader coming on MTV News part. Um. Which is are we still recording? Yeah, we are. Okay. Uh. Did you, you have just any- jump back in? Yeah, did you have anything else about George Jones? No, no, I'm, I'm, I, knowing you guys had it covered, I'm, I'm saving my, uh, uh, words for somebody coming up here. So please proceed. Ah, all right. So real quick, we will talk about, uh, producer Phil Ramone, uh, who, uh, some of you may know, uh, is more largely associated with Billy Joel. Um, uh, the records, uh, from, uh, I think from his, uh, second or third one in the seventies to, uh, midpoint of his eighties stuff. Uh, he was mainly chief producer on uh, the Billy Joel records. Um, he was also he also had a very large career with uh, with uh, with production and production techniques uh, and revolutionizing production techniques. Um, he also worked with uh, pretty much everybody. Would you say, Rob? Yes. He did a slew of like duets albums for various yes. people. Yes. Yeah. Um, which was uh, interesting, also in the production technique where. He basically had people phone in their contributions. Literally. Uh, I, I believe they had been talked about, uh, with the, uh, Sinatra record, how, uh, how, uh, the various and odd ways they actually got people to record vocals for that record and where they got them to be recorded. Um, I think Bono literally did it over the phone, uh, for the first, uh, Sinatra duets record. Um, and it's and strangely some of this stuff sound it sounded really really good so uh uh Ramon was uh very very good at handling uh remote recordings and made them sound uh really well uh he was also involved in the uh the recording of the uh first he produced Billy Joel's 52nd Street which i believe is the first uh album released on uh compact disc so uh huh. I know. I'm just pulling these out, right? Uh, but uh, that was uh, anything else you guys wanted to add about Phil Ramone? Uh, not in the Ramones. <laughs> no, yeah, that's important. That's important. No, not in the Ramones. But uh, but also, I I would just say again, you've heard his uh, his albums that he's produced without knowing it. I mean, I didn't I didn't put I knew about the Billy Joel stuff, but I didn't realize he had done uh, still crazy after all these years for Paul Simon. Yeah. So. So there you go. So there you go. So we're going to move on to the one which wanted to talk about now. Ugh. Um, photographer, artist. How else do would you like to put this? Uh, Visual Svengali. There you go. There uh, you go. I mean, I, here, here's what I would say, and this this is what I thought of. Is there anyone? And I put this to you guys because you know more albums than I do. Uh, is there anybody more associated? and more famous for being an album cover artist than strictly album cover, not crossover, yeah. but, but Dan Storm, uh, Thorgerson, 
uh, well, well, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Yes, there's that. There's this one guy who did a lot of stuff in the '50s and '60s whose name completely escapes me. Well, I, I, I meant like I, I'm just like with George Jones, we've lost, you know, yeah. arguably the greatest living country voice. Yes, we have. We have, I think, lost the greatest living album artist. And I don't know anyone right now who is so associated with that particular. You know, medium. Yeah, damn, I'm completely forgetting his name. There's a guy now who's in his 90s. Yeah. And I'm completely forgetting his name. But the the difference is, and he and he sort of was the one of the people that sort of took album covers to a whole new level. But I think in this case, this is where all of the records that he worked on sort of got their in their indelible pop culture stamp, so to speak, not just as albums, but as like visual pieces of art through him. Because you can see the covers of any of the albums, and you instantly know what the album is and what it sounds like when you, when you see the when you see the artwork. It's also sort of one of the first visual artists that made a seat that made an album album cover, where the album cover would later get parodied and used in other ways, which right. is actually kind of a uh, a tribute sort of. But I think that you know pretty much every record he did was sort of like a giant exclamation point of awesomeness, kind of. I mean. There's not there, there's not a bad I don't, I don't think look, kind of looking over what he did there wasn't really a great lack of horrible records there I, yeah, there well, wasn't anything that was really sort of a misstep right you probably well, should mention his name well no too. no I did I did it's it's, it's Storm Thorgerson and let me just okay. mention let me just mention where people know him from it, because a lot of people don't know his name but you'll know but, him when you yeah when you'll you know him name. I mean you know Dark Side of the Moon right pretty much all all the Pink Floyd covers uh, since Umaguma, with the exception of like the Wall, which I think was all Charles Scarf. But, um, but yeah, so so that's where he's most known and most famous for. I mean, the Animals cover uh, with the with the pig over Battersea Station. That's that's him. Uh, the as part of Hypnosis, um, the I think the all four Peter Gabriel solo albums that are now as 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 an article I read pointed out, he they're now. They're identified by the artwork since they're all called Peter Gabriel. So that's why it's yeah. Peter Gabriel Scratch, Peter Gabriel Melt. You know, that, those are the unofficial titles. Yeah. Um, so but what, what I find interesting about his, his stuff is not only was it extremely unique. I mean, you know, they're, they're reading about how people were. He, he talked about how people at the label went nuts when he had the, the cover for Adam Hart Mother, which is a cow standing in a field. That's it. Um, but there's there's something about his stuff that when you see an album cover, you, and it's not just as, as it was uh, you know later on where it was like well there's people and they're standing in a desolate location and or beach and there's something weird there. It's not just that because I mean you look at like uh, the cover of Muse's Absolution, and my reaction was well, that looks like Storm Thorgerson. Well guess what? It is Storm Thorgerson. <laughs> You know, there, there's there's something about his covers where even if you don't know it's him, you you kind of know it's him uh, that I can't quite put my finger on. But he was an incredibly iconic artist and uh, all the interviews that I've seen with him, very entertaining and weird and wonderful um, and had just a smidgen of the um, uh, of the like the Salvador Dali surrealism to it. Yeah. And, and, and not even in the fact that. Well, here's a, uh, you know, here, here's here's someone being menaced by a giant disembodied eye. Uh, no, it's not even that. It's like, 
oh, well, here's a cover in which here are these two people with these giant flags. And what the hell is that burning in the far background? <laughs> and the other useless fact is if you got the Hitchhiker's albums when they came out, when they first released the albums of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on vinyl of the radio plays. Yeah. That's his art. Yep. So the most famous one of his is probably what? I Wish You Were Here? Well, yes, because they Wish You Were Here. Well, I would say most most famous maybe is Dark Side. Yeah. But, but perhaps most infamous is Wish You Were Here because they actually lit a guy on fire to take a picture of a guy on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Which I believe it's in the... Um, there was there the past couple of years there was a documentary that was out of the was it the essential albums documentary series yeah. the UK where they actually showed the behind the scenes of the shooting of that cover and and you you don't today you don't even really think about it oh well it's very easy to light someone on fire you just paint it <laughs> fire no they lit someone on fucking fire so take th- take that Photoshop yeah <laughs> yes. So so yeah, it's it is a um, uh, it is a I don't know a a a great loss to art <laughs> and a great loss to album covers. And I would yeah. say you don't owe it to yourself to go back and look for not only the stuff that he did solo, quote unquote solo, but the um uh the stuff that um uh you know that he did as part of the hypnosis uh group, which did yeah. Uma Guma and eventually did um uh. Houses of the Holy was a hypnosis. Um, I, I believe that was hypnosis, right? I think it's yeah. I think it was uh, that and Coda and In Through the Outdoor, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But but uh, but yeah. So so definitely look that up again. Like so many of these other people we talk about, you know them, you just don't know that you know them. <laughs> and I will also argue that when you look at his work, um, I'm going to paint it in a broader a broader palette. When you look at his art on albums. It adds a visual element to the art. And if I start to lose anybody here, tell me, and I'll, and I'll shut up. Um, but it adds a visual element of the art that became so attached to music itself that by adding that visual co- component to making a record, you could argue that we would not have a music video or any sort of like YouTube videos or any sort of visual aspects of music if that wasn't there. Because I think people up until those records still viewed a record as something you just listen to the idea of like taking an album home, looking at the cover art and thinking about how the album cover related to the music and what the meaning was on those visuals compared to the music was not something people thought about when they listened to a record. So I think it added a sort of another dimension to listening to music or making a record. And I think that, you know, sort of the next progressive stuff was probably a moving video of that. So that's sort of where I'm going to take this in a completely different tangent, and I'm probably sounding insane, so I'm going to shut up. No, you were doing very well there. Yeah. At sounding insane, but also making sense. Yes. Uh, we do want to mention uh, briefly um, some uh, efforts that are uh, helping out the uh, folks in Boston from the recent uh, bombings. Um, Dropkick Murphys, uh, one of my favorite bands, uh, were the first ones out the gate uh, pretty early, actually. Uh, I think I believe on Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday of, they started selling uh, T-shirts on their website. Uh, and I believe they're up to somewhere in the neighborhood of about $150,000 for, uh, for marathon explosion victims, which is... <laughs> 
yeah. actually pretty, pretty cool. Um, they're also organizing uh, at least one benefit show that I think played, uh, and actually they're playing as we're recording. Um, but uh, I believe they're trying to get uh, something else going with uh, some other Boston acts as well. Um, if you would like to help out, uh, you can check out, you can still grab the T-shirt if you would like uh, from Dropkick's website, uh, and uh, we'll link that up uh, in the show notes. Uh, I also wanted to point, I also wanted to mention um, the after effect, the biggest after effect that I guess we know of, if you watch a lot of sports in the last two weeks, uh, which was uh, Sweet Caroline being played uh, by literally everyone um, uh, from Neil Diamond in the, uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, and for those of you who don't know the significance of it, they play uh, Sweet Caroline, I believe, in the eighth inning at Boston Red Sox. Seventh inning stretch. Yeah. Is it seventh inning? Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, and, and strangely, the song has no mention of Boston or Massachusetts anywhere in it. So, but it's about Caroline Kennedy. Yes. So that's probably some of the attachment. Yeah. But they play it at Red Sox games and sort of, it's, it's become sort of the the unofficial Boston party song. Yeah. So, and and I did think it was kind of cool that, uh, Diamond just showed up. Gets up in the morning, jumps on a plane, flies to Boston, <laughs> gets there on completely on his own, goes calls, to the park, calls the stadium, and goes bought a, uh, no, bought a ticket. Yeah. Oh man, bought a ticket, <laughs> goes to the uh, security people, and says, "I'm Neil Diamond. Can you get me to?" The he calls up there, and says, "I'm Neil Diamond. I'm here for the show. I want to help. I'm going to sing the song." At which point, people probably freak the fuck out. <laughs> I did not know that is that. Oh, I that my, was not that was not prearranged. My respect for Neil Diamond has just, it wasn't bad to begin with, but holy shit, that's amazing. He just, you know, and he he's just like you know, shows up, does it, and then he doesn't. You know, there was no pre-release press release of it. He didn't loiter around and do interviews. He just sang the song and he went and back to watching story, the rest of the, the game. The story about this is that the Red Sox have been trying to get him to do this since. Since they put the song in the ballpark, yeah, wow, and well, he just showed up. But but see, here's here's what does it for me: the fact that he bought a ticket. He didn't walk up and say, "By the way, I'm Neil Diamond. That should get me in here for free." He bought a fucking ticket. That is fantastic. Well, it gets better. Oh, tell me how it gets better. Um, okay, so Neil Diamond realizes that the week of the bombings, Sweet Caroline is like the number one iTunes song downloaded in the country. I mean, it moved what? What? Probably about a hundred thousand units on. It it went up somewhere in the neighborhood of seven hundred percent of its yeah. regular sales. So he basically called the label and said, "Look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take every dime of that money that comes from that being downloaded to iTunes or Amazon or whatever, and we're donating it to these people. I don't need the money." Nice. So, uh, if you would like to grab a copy of Sweet Caroline, uh, you can you can help out the Boston uh, victims as well. If you're not quite down with Dropkick Murphys. Well, I mean, it, it, the thing is too is that you know how can you not how can you not like Neil Diamond after that? You know. Yes. Like I said, it's not like I disliked Neil Diamond. But I know. Now, I know. Now, like, but this guy's crap. And there's you know, and there's guys like you know Springsteen. And Billy Joel, and you sort of think, well, yeah, there's there's guys that you know are going to do benefits for them. You know they are. 
I imagine right. there's going to be some huge Boston benefit show with like everybody in it shortly or yeah. something. I mean, the thing that's interesting is, you know, like Adam Sandler put on his on his tweet, Boston is the only city in the world that if you fuck with it, they will shut down the entire city and find you, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it is also the only city where everyone who's made it out of Boston, sort of a celebrity, whether in film or music or whatever, just instantly, without any sort of grandstanding, just gave back. You know, there's a lot of... um Movie people just went and said, okay, any family that can't pay for their medical bills, I'll pay for them. I mean, there's a lot of that going on across the board in the entertainment industry. But there is an awful lot of – there's an awful lot about sort of baseball in our traditional culture sort of being the healing thing. An event sort of – after a tragic event, if they play a baseball game right after it, then everything's back to normal. It's kind of like the national reset sort of. And for Neil Diamond to come out, that is probably the one biggest stage that he could have done that and really made an impact. I mean, him just showing up and doing a show wasn't going to be the same thing. But him showing up and doing that song and no one knowing that he was going to be there, you know, not even like the players knew he was there. Uh, the PA, you know, the grounds crew didn't even know until he showed up to walk out. I think there were two people in the stadium that knew he was there. That's so awesome. I can't even... Ah, oh, it's fantastic. You know, and the fact that the fact that he, you know, flew into Boston, nobody tipped off anybody from when he flew into Boston to when he went to the game. I mean, normally you hear, oh, blah blah blah, has landed at the airport. They're in town. You know, none of that. You know, um, not a word. And he just shows up and does his thing. And then he didn't stick around and you know take the spotlight. He just left. He just sang a song, got off, and left. Which is harder than the coming out and do it in the first place. The exit from something like that is the hardest thing to pull off because how do you express your gratitude for the applause without looking like you're just doing this to make money? And he handled it in a way that was just so refined and classy that it's just awesome. Well, what's great is uh, I'm looking at the picture here uh, of him with the mic on the field, and he's wearing a, a Boston baseball cap, yeah. And he's fully bearded. So really, the exit is simple. Take off the cap, walk out. No one's going to recognize you with that beard on, man. Neil Diamond is Batman. I know. Oh. <laughs> this is, you know what? The, Neil Diamond is, is Batman's, it's, 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 this, it's this version of, of Matches Malone. That's his Matches Malone right there. <laughs> no, there's your obscure comic reference. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, speaking of Hall of Famers, uh, we can talk about the people they just put in uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions uh, ceremony. So, a couple of weeks ago, I believe. And uh, this year, they put in uh, Rush and Hart and Public Enemy. <coughs> and um, I believe Lou Adler. And uh, I believe, I've, did I miss anyone there? Is this the year Albert King went in or not? No. Uh, yeah, Albert King did co go in with uh, Donna Summer uh, and Randy Newman and yeah. Quincy Jones. Nice. Yes, that's everybody. Yes, <laughs> that's everybody. Um, what I thought, uh, I, first of all, I think uh, Rush, did Rush get in by vote or was that the web vote that they got in by? Web vote. Was it web vote? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Rush gets in by a web vote. Um. 
I think Public Enemy also edged out the NWA via web vote. Um, I believe Hart was already in there, um, which uh, which that was good. Um, although I believe uh, there it was just Anna Nancy and their their current band, <laughs> not uh, the previous any previous versions yeah. of Hart that they performed, which which I think they were very clear about that they weren't going to do. Uh, there were going to be no reunions for the rest of Hart. Um, but, uh, I, I found it interesting that, uh, PE got pretty much the old band back together, basically, uh, that, uh, uh, Terminator X was out there and the SWs were out there. And I thought that was interesting. So, I didn't actually see anything from the ceremony. Yeah. Um, I'm glad Albert King's in. I'm really glad Donna Summer's in, which yeah. I know people are going to be like, what? But no, I mean, really, um, you would not have a Beyonce right now without a Donna Summer. Um, wouldn't even have a Katy Perry without, or Lady Gaga without Donna Summer, for that matter. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad Quincy got in. That's, I'm kind of surprised that didn't happen earlier. Yeah, um, really? Seriously? Um, <clears throat> so that's, you know, that's kind of cool. It's, it's a weird year for me, so I'll just leave yeah. it at that. It, it is. I, I do kind of agree with this lineup, though. I again, I I am I am surprised that I didn't find an argument in any of this. Uh, cause well, usually, because usually there's like every year there's like one we trump and go, you know, that shouldn't be there. All right, this is where they throw the spears at me. But without okay. the web vote, I don't think Rush gets in. No, you're probably right about not, that. Not yet. No. No. Um. So, and believe me, I, I'm I'm still wrestling with trying to get Rush. I really am. But um, I, I think I, Rush was the clearest example of what would happen when they when they did the web vote. Yeah, and I think they wanted yeah. to get that one out of the way. You know, uh, I think and, Rush should probably kiss, and that'll probably happen next year if they do web voting. I would argue that Rush would go in before Kiss. I mean, I'm yeah. fine with that. Um, and I don't. Well, I don't personally necessarily love rush i just the, the i i appreciate their musicianship i just the voice i don't get the voice but having said that i can still appreciate them i just don't know if career-wise from a b to c to d to e if they deserve it public enemy you could make that same argument except they were so groundbreaking well, when they when they burst on the scene well that's that's what i was going to ask is that so now because so, to me it makes sense. Obviously, there are other bands, other rap groups that could have gone in before Public Enemy, right? Yes. When there's yeah. all the like NWA and stuff like that. But it seems to me that based on, because right now it's like Grandmaster Flash, right, and Public yes. Enemy, and that's it, right? I think Run DMC. Oh, it's Run DMC in? Oh, okay. Yes. And the Beasties. Yes, Run DMC and the Beasties. Okay, Boys. Run DMC Beasties. All right. So, but for, so so actually that that does make sense I, for the pattern of how they the bring suite. people in. I mean, probably the next rapper I'm going to imagine will be LL Cool J. Um, if, if you just go by impact wise, well, that's it, true. But but what what I what I, I guess the point I was badly trying to make is that it seems like with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they they get the low hanging fruit first, and then they'll go back and fill in the people. In this case, like the NWA's, like that, they'll eventually get in. But they'll get the just the big names first to kind of force a wedge in does that make any sense yeah. that yeah okay. and i think and i think the deal with nwa is while they were just as relevant as public enemy public enemy sort of 
struck more of a national yes. chord. Yes. And I think, and I think that, they had a wider reach, too. Well, I think they had more of a resonance. I mean, you know, when you have people like Anthrax and Metallica, you know, that really get what Public Enemy is doing, yeah. it branched, that, that is when it really sort of broke. I mean, yeah, you had, you know, Debbie Harry and a lot of other people putting rap on their records. But when Public Enemy does tours, with Anthrax, and when they do tours with other big albums, they sort of, it, it took that little step that Run DMC did with Aerosmith and sort of made it a giant or foot, a, a more bigger footprint. Yeah. yeah. And I think they sort of just, and and it, and it, they benefited from MTV definitely because having the sort of visual presence, presence that they did, having the, while NWA was in your face and very much a, you know, fuck you, we're doing what we want, Public Enemy was very much an in your face, fuck you, we want to do what we want, but they at least, to some extent, in the presentation and playing the game, did it a little better with the average listener. Well, yeah, you know? the presentation. Chuck D had more of an intellectual sort yeah. of. Well, you, you you had you had you had Chuck D, and then you had you know Flavor Flav on the side with with being the jester of the group, and then you had like the their uh their, their like their Imperial Guard type of backing. S1Ws. Yeah, S1Ws. Yeah, 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 thank you. They're stormtroopers. Yeah, which we totally want. Duffley and I want S1Ws all the time. <laughs> you know, I've seen the I've seen that you have S1Ws on both of your Amazon wish lists. Um. But no, I mean, but yeah, from from a visual and 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 presentation point of view, it was much more sort of, I don't know, very kind of rugged theatrical. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Theatrical without actually meaning. I I mean, I I can see where Chuck D might have sat down and plotted all this out on a big graph because he just he, he is he strikes me as that kind of person who could pull that off. But it didn't feel like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Kind of in the way, kind of theatrical and kind of the way that Kiss did the, the pyro or like. Uh... Cooper well, did, you know, executions and things like that. Yeah, and, and I will say... They had a militant stance, so they needed yeah. military. Yeah, yeah. And well, go ahead, Public Rob. Enemy was the first sort of band to come along after the generation of the civil rights movement, meaning that a lot of the kids of the people that worked in the civil rights movement were in the same generation as Public Enemy. So that's the first voice of that second sort of tier of it, wave of it. And they confronted a lot of issues that you did not have to be a black kid in Compton to get. Whereas NWA was very much the voice of angry, pissed off, black LA American. Public Enemy was a little more national. And they sort of, I think, lyrically hit on a lot more issues other than race um, that I think made them be – don't get me wrong. They were very, very political. And at the time, I mean, it's funny now when you, when you think about the fact – and I know we'll talk more about this later. When Public Enemy and NWA broke, that was seriously fucked up shit. I mean, yeah. people did not know what to fucking do with that. I mean, I you know I remember it was like a big deal to play a Public Enemy record, you know, on your Walkman, and people are like, "What is that? Oh, it's Public Enemy! Oh my God! Oh, you know." Um, it was. I mean, it absolutely. The only thing I can describe it as it was just like this sort of normal pop culture, pop music, sort of after new wave sort of musical environment. And then they just were like the thunderstorm that rained on it. I mean, <laughs> it, That's so right. it sort of had the effect of um, 
if you remember th- when they when they inserted uh, Rock Around the Clock in the uh, the Blackboard Jungle film. Yeah. Where immediately, mm. like Bill Haley and the Comets were Public Enemy number one. Wow. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. And then Perfect. and then you get to like do the right thing. And a lot of the outrage about, or a lot of the heat from Public Enemy, a lot of that came from as an extension of, you know, the Spike Lee movie. Yeah. Uh, Do the right thing. So I, I kind of look at it that way. So it, it's interesting as from a rot perspective, it's sort of ground zero from a national level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and the just before we jump off the topic, I just wanted to say that I think because you were talking about. Because uh, Rob, I think you said you'd seen Kiss getting in before Rush, right? Or did no, I? No, no, I, I could see Rush getting in before Kiss. Okay. Well, my only thing about Kiss is that whereas Rush has been, at least from my perspective, you've got you know the music, and then you got the rabid fan base and a bunch exactly. of and a bunch of T-shirts. Yeah. With Kiss, you've got although you do get concept albums, you get some very heavy but, sort oh, of. Concept. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you do. Don't don't get me wrong, I know you do, but but for me, as, as we're talking about impact. I mean, yeah. Kiss and the way that they have not only just their music and theatrical presence and the yeah. rabid fan base and the T-shirts, but the fact that they have been everywhere. You know what I mean? Where it's like everything from like Phantom of the Paradise to the to the Halloween special to, yeah. I mean, being being again, being parodied everywhere uh, and and their kind of merchandise empire. Yeah, I mean, which, there's not a mini rush. <laughs> Oh, I wish there was. Oh, I wish there was now. You only need smaller Canadians. Oh, uh, please, please. Okay, let, let me just let me just say this. Let me just put this out in the world. Sorry. Um, d- d- you know, dear dear Peter Dinklage, you know I respect you, and your your SNL and Daily Show appearances have been genius. However, all I can say is when they bring you back for SNL for Game of Thrones season four, mini rush, please, for the love of God, I want to see you rocking Tom Sawyer. Please, please. That's all I'm saying. I would cry. It would be I, so awesome. I, I know. So hard I would cry. I, I know. I know. I mean, Peter Dinklage is funny as hell just being Peter Dinklage. But and we mean I'm, that respectfully, not in a mocking No, way. no. I, t- I totally mean I'm just <laughs> saying I've, I'm, I'm just putting that out there as yeah. this would be amazing. Not 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 denigrating, yeah. fucking amazing. And the thing about the thing about Kiss too is that they, I think that they brought a showmanship to metal. That uh, yeah, that sort of once it left metal, it died. You know, I think it sort of opened up. And the way I look at it, as far as Kiss goes, they took what Alice Cooper was doing and probably to a, to a smaller sense, what Iggy pop was doing and T-Rex. Yeah. And T-Rex and, and, and probably the New York dolls and, and turned and, it to 11 and basically turned it to 11 and basically toured everywhere with it. Um, because you know, while they were touring very, 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 very small places. Yes. My, my best places friend, other bands won't go to, my well, best friend like clubs in New York and saw them play the Missouri State Fair opening for Bob Seger in 1975. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, they would play everywhere. I mean, people forget that the that band. And when I said, you know, I could see them going in before Kiss, it wasn't because of a personal thing. It was mainly because people today, I don't think. Get the cultural imprint of Kiss. I don't think it's ever sort of talked about. Oh, um, I think they'll be the next ones that go in if it goes to Webboat again, because you know, outside yeah. of outside of Russia's, you know, 
But it's going to be people base. our our yeah. generation and older that are going to that are really going to hit them voting. Well, yeah. and, and I would say this: I'm I'm fine with Kiss going in on the next web vote because I think for 2015 the web vote should go to Fishbone. Okay, I've said it. We should do that. <laughs> you, there you go. No, going with living color. There you go. We we have announced it here. We there you go. That. Fishbone 2015, bitches. It's happening. <laughs> but but actually, next year is going to be. I don't know. So next year, if they do web vote, you're looking at what? Kiss? I think so. At, that makes you're sense. Looking at, you're looking at Nirvana? Yeah. Uh, because if they don't go first ballot, I would imagine they'd have to. I, I don't see how they can't. Um, and then you're probably looking at who else are we looking at? What? Nine Inch Nails, maybe, on the ballot? Mm-hmm. On the ballot, but I don't know about going in. I don't think going in yet. But I'm looking at ballot. Next year is going to be the mop-up year when they get a lot of the, the, the in-between people they haven't put in yet. So you think that's where they're going to go? They're going to take the turn and maybe take Nirvana and then like a bunch of 80s bands they forgot about. Not necessarily 80s bands, but they might take, um, they'll take Nirvana. Uh, they might take someone like Robert Cray. They might take um, sort of, you know, is Merle Haggard in? Uh Huh, hang on. I, I, I don't think Merle or uh, the Outlaws, I don't think any of the Outlaws are in. You know, I don't think Willie Nelson's in. I mean, there's a lot of sort of older generation guys they can put in. So wow, no Willie Nelson. Yeah, that's right. That's true. And there is the still there is still amongst the music community a very sort of hold your nose over the mm-hmm. '80s musically kind of. I think wow. Well, here and, and I think to the, to the extent that we're talking about, well, that's why Kiss isn't there. That's why uh, Cheap Trick isn't there. Well, even I, though I, Cheap Trick and Kiss. Based on sales alone, should be there. Well, Cheap Trick might go in on a, on a web vote. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's funny. I just pulled up a list of uh, of bands that will be eligible. It looks like starting in 2014. And frighteningly enough, uh, you got Green Day. You've yeah. Got, and I'm, I'm not talking about these might be on the ballot. I'm just saying it's interesting that they eligible. are now eligible. Yeah. yeah. Lenny Kravitz, uh, Nine Inch Nails, of course. Uh, the Orb. Uh, yeah. Tom, Tom Petty. And there's a bunch of others, including that I that I won't mention, like Skid Row. But I'm just saying, there's a well, bunch they won't of put they won't they won't put the orb in because they haven't put Hawkwind in yet. That's yeah. true. So, no, I'm, I'm just guessing, I'm just saying I feel old is what I guess I'm saying. Oh, I know. Yes, <laughs> you feel old. <laughs> I'm guessing this is Tom Petty as a solo artist. Mm. Yes. Yes. Uh, because Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are already in. Yeah, true. But but do do you think they'd even get him in again? <laughs> I don't think so because technically the solo record was the Heartbreakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the two solo records were actually the Heartbreakers backing him up. They just didn't call it that. Yeah, I the you Heartbreakers know. and occasionally Ringo Starr. Okay, that's a solo. I mean, record. they could put in they could put in Dion Warwick. They could put in yeah, um, just a whole. I mean, there's a lot of interesting people they could put in. But I, I still think they're gonna they're gonna they would put someone like Nirvana in before they would put in like Duran Duran, for example. I, I just I just think they look at you know. But then you get into the argument of okay, if they put Nirvana in, why aren't they putting the Pixies in? Why aren't they? Why isn't Sonic Youth in? Well, well, because because Nirvana. I mean, I can. But again, it's like I'm saying. Because then you get into the bands that influenced Kurt. And then you're like, well, they have to go in. Then. Well, yeah, but see, but that, that I think Nirvana paves the way for them to come in because yeah. then after Nirvana hits, 
then you get the backswell of motherfuckers. Why aren't these people in? And that's how they get in, you know? Yeah. One, they put Nirvana in because a couple things. One, it's Nirvana and the, yeah. the huge impact that they had because, you know, all these guys in metal say they heard smells like teen spirit and it was over. Okay. One. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's a common no, thing. No, no, I know. Yeah. I know. One, two, everyone in the industry loves Dave Grohl. True. So, and we know Dave Grohl will, in fact, do anything. Yes, because he never <laughs> he never sleeps. He never sleeps. And I will say this though: uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have some competition for 2015 because I see who's coming up on the horizon, and I think it's gonna come down. Mark my words, people: it's gonna be Fishbone versus Cannibal Corpse. So I'm just saying. Fishbone 2015 is that that a thing? Now? I mean, it's interesting because when do you when do you consider, you know, XTC or Madness or you know, just sort of the Joy specials. Division, New Orders, The Smiths, um, yeah. <laughs> just all the of Smiths, the British. You know, bands. the Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen might be the two eighty bands that get in. Um, you think uh, Echo above, Order, above maybe New Order? I think New Order would get in. No, I'm just saying in general. Yeah. Um, well, but I think in general, there's a sort of disdain for a lot of that 80s stuff. Well, shit. I mean, XTC has got to get in eventually because they, I, I, I can't, I can't get through a week without hearing a band that's, you know, influenced by XTC. Pro- probably at least with what I listen to, more than practically anybody else. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Because without without XTC, you don't get. <laughs> You know, you don't get, uh, I don't know, uh, fun. You don't get fun or the previous, the format. You don't get yeah. a bunch of stuff. Yes. So, anyway. So, yeah, and and this topic will probably rear its head again. It always does. and we Quite a we few always, times. We always think, oh, we'll just spend five minutes on Rock and Roll. Bullshit, we won't. Bullshit, we won't. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to mention country for the second time on a uh, soundboard. <laughs> oh, wow. I know, you're shocked. Um, but uh, uh, Brad Paisley, uh, someone who probably the three of us wouldn't have listened to without this, uh, recently released a new album called Wheelhouse. And on that new album, uh, <laughs> he's released a track uh, called Accidental Racist, um, which uh, which was a apparently a duet with LL Cool Jet. You see how this is all coming together, folks? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but keep going. It's okay. It's a J.J. Abrams show. We don't have to explain. Oh, um, wow. So, so wait a minute. LL Cool J is a smoke monster? That's slightly racist. Yes. Okay. Um, but basically... Accidentally uh, racist. Sorry. It's accidentally racist. Yes. Uh, basically, uh, the song uh, is uh, basically Brad Paisley's uh, ruminations about uh, being a white guy in the South. Uh, wearing a Leonard Skinner t-shirt for him, a little emo teardrop. Um, but uh, this song has caused quite a bit of controversy, as you can imagine, because people, it's basically, basically, the song is uh, profiling is bad, okay, basically, is the uh, the uh, the translation of the song. It just does it in a very strange way. Um, and, and first of all, have you guys heard this song and, or looked at the lyrics and what, what, what do you think? Is it a flap over nothing or, or what do you think? Well, all I can say is that, um, since I've heard about this, I, I haven't been able to watch NCIS Los Angeles. 
Oh, wait. Watch, I'm sorry. I forgot. I wasn't watching it to begin with. Excuse uh, me. Okay. I take it all back. <laughs> no, I've I've not heard it. I have read the lyrics. I have read about it. I I think that's about all I can do. Um, I don't. I. I, I'm not sure what to make of this because the, here, okay, here's my question: Are, We're supposed to take this seriously? I, I think that was the idea. It was supposed to be sort of an ebony ivory thing, and I'm not really sure. Oh my god! I have well, like ebony and ivory for the 21st century. Oh my god! You Please. know, and here's the thing: I can kind of see. I could sort of see where he was coming from or what the idea was. I just think it's horribly executed um, because you, and, and you, you, which growing up North Alabama, you, you kind of get the whole Leonard Skinner sentiment yeah. because there's no way you can, honestly, for those of you who do not understand this, there is no way you can escape uh, the, uh, the, 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 the orbit of the Southern United States without coming out yeah. about some Leonard Skinner entering your no. brain. I know and- again, especially if you're in a band, because you would get yeah. someone would yell "Freebird" at every single damn concert. <laughs> upon which, upon which, by law, my band had to launch into a reggae version of "Sweet Home Alabama" and roll the dice as to whether or not we were going to be killed. So, yeah, that's, there's- what, that's what we did for fun, folks. There's, there's no way you can escape the orbit of the South without at least. At bare minimum, picking a Leonard Skinner song you can live with in the car without brutally just hurting someone and the radio. Um, but but I kind of see the point um, where where the, the idea of the song, yeah, profiling across the board is bad. Uh, blah blah blah. It's just it's I, I I don't know if it's the way it's presented or the fact it's just the blandest country song ever. Man, I've got to go listen to this now. Okay. <laughs> Rob, you're on deck. <laughs> uh, first of all, never the, the uh, 86 Ferengi rule of acquisition says never take any country music artist seriously who marries Renee Zellweger. Okay, uh, well, number one, Jack White. What? That was after Jack White. Jack White. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> ouch. <laughs> the other thing is, you know. There's basically kids, and and Uncle Wiggs will back me up on this. If you are, per se, wanting to be in a band, and you want to be cool, and you want to be liked, never do two things. Never use the N-word if you're a white guy, and never just talk about the Confederate flag. It's just a really bad idea for white people to talk about the Confederate flag, even if they mean it in the most un- Unmolested of terms. It just pisses people off. Leave it alone. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think I'm with Widge in that I think he basically wanted to say, look, I come from the South. This is so ingrained in our culture, you know, with car, you know, you grow up with, you know, shirts with the Confederate flag on it. And then you've got Leonard Skinner and you've got all these sort of references to that culture everywhere without it necessarily being tied in to racism from their point of view, yeah. right? But although, to an African-American point of view, it's still very strong. So you, you, have kind these... of, you kind of think about it and you go, yeah, Brad, I can see your point there. But um, if you're outside of the South, how about not wearing that shirt into a Starbucks? It's called tact. 
But but the thing is, there's a lot of a lot of people don't understand why that pisses people off. I mean, our generation has sort of been dumbed down enough that they don't understand the cultural sensitivity of the Confederate flag. You know, um, because even if you watch, and I'm I, and I can't even believe I'm going to do this, but if you if you can take the Brad Paisley song and then take it into the context of the Dukes of Hazard, where, you know, yes, they had a Confederate flag on television every week. But it was very subtle, and it didn't bother anyone, and it never came up as a, as an issue in the show of why someone should not watch the Dukes of Hazard. There was not outrage over the Dukes of Hazard because they drove a car with the Confederate flag on it. You right? do realize they weren't looking at the car, do you? I'm, the point is, they got away with putting a Confederate <laughs> flag on TV for how many seasons? I'm just saying. Wait a minute. Right? They, put, so, they put an attractive woman in short shorts next to the car. Who's looking at the car? That's just. Uh, I I think see. we've learned something about Tuffley here. So, um, so anyway, <laughs> any I, I think for him, I think for him to to make that going. record and release it and not expect there to be blowback is a really dumb idea. No, but but here's the question: Did did he not expect there to be blowback? Because if you're making a song like this that addresses a controversial thing. Are you really so stupid to think? No, maybe the answer is obviously yes. But are you really so stupid to think there's not going to be controversy back against your controversy? I don't know. I mean, he may be trying to open the dialogue. I mean, because I honestly, the whole key to this for me is LL Cool J. Yeah. Because LL Cool J ain't going to do this bullshit for money if he don't think, you know, if it pisses him off culturally and socially, he won't do it. Right? Plus, LL Cool J, despite his acting career and not making a lot of records lately, is still strong enough to beat the living shit on almost anybody. So, uh, I think that there is a certain, I think, well-intentioned idea to the song, but I just don't necessarily think it's a song you have to record. (laughs) Um, Because it's a song that can be taken so many ways by so many people. And you don't want to... Rule number three, don't make a song that can be used by people for a different way that you want to do it. Because it could be taken completely as a different way than it was meant to be taken. And why they didn't see that, I don't know. Um, You know, I get that it's supposed to be this, hey, let's put this bullshit aside and live together. And I get that it's, you know, putting a really strong country artist with a really, you know big rapper i get it but the execution was terrible yeah and i think here's here's the other thing that that kind of that that, that made me think about what what our big topic big topic is going to be because i started thinking about this going since when did we look at country songs since is is that as is that how far we go now is since when are we looking at that you know well they haven't had anything that's been said that hasn't been about a lot of the say this is a song that's outside of the bounds of the country music that's being made now yeah I mean you gotta give them credit for writing something that's like not within the traditional I love my car my dog or my woman sort of country music songs we get these days um you know um and you know this might be an attempt by Brad Paisley to sort of move into the Kid Rock sort of strata of Oh, oh, wow. Wow. I'm sorry. Would that, that, okay. Is that, is that classification above or below? What? No, Uh, never mind. I'm sorry. I'm now, now Rob has broken me. Oh my God. (laughs) 
I'm sorry. Is that bad? No. What? Why would so? Okay. No, uh, why would someone seek that out? I don't understand. It may not be him. Well, one, say what you want about Kid Rock, right? He sells millions of fucking. Oh no, no, no! no. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I, all respect to him. That's why I'm like. I don't I know, I'm sorry if I, if I pissed anybody off, but no, no. Uh, I'm, 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 and 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 let's be fair. His Kid Rock's entire previous record was ripping off Leonard Skinner. So there's there's a common thread here. Yeah, you know, but I think that. I think Brad Paisley sort of looked at it and said, I want to get sort of a piece of that commercial success, commercial country pie. He's been trying to do it for a while. Um, he's trying to be this like sort of uh, cross in the spirit of George Jones, a country artist who sells on a rock to a rock audience and to a contemporary non-country artist. I think that's what he's going for. So I think part of this is, make my music more accessible to a more mainstream audience and maybe the people that are plugged into Kid Rock will be plugged into me you know I think simultaneously he's going for the Everclear audience and the Kid Rock audience in one record and he's failing at both hmm yeah okay that makes sense I mean I, I think he's sincere in what he's saying because I don't think he's a racist. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and that's and that's kind of what I'm getting. I can see where he's going with it. It's just um, the execution sort of left him open to be a target. You know, um, but also he will sell a ton more records now because it's controversial. Yeah. Yes, and I think that's you. I think, folks, you can see where we're going next. See, I set the table for you there. Mmm, table. So, uh, this leads us to our big topic, which, uh, as I said from the outset, uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, offensive uh, songs or shocking imagery or things artists use to get attention. Now, this all gets attention. Uh, Brad Paisley actually got uh, attention to his album. Um, Elvis with his suggestive dance moves outside of the camera of the Ed Sullivan show uh, got people, broke him nationwide. Um so that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, sort of offensive, themed offensive uh, music or offensive imagery and uh, how far we've come along uh, since since Elvis. And uh, what, uh, a little later we'll be uh, getting into uh, maybe what what could possibly shock us some more. So uh, just, just to start off, what I, I guess the starting point for me, obviously, because I was a kid who listened to metal, I have to go with the PMRC and I have to go with Charlton Heston reading the lyrics to Cop Killer, which, by the way, if you haven't heard that, damn good cover version. Um, but uh, I have to go with things like that because that's kind of, that's what I grew up on, uh, which was uh, Tipper reading Wasp lyrics and uh, and Charlton Heston reading the lyrics for Cop Killer. Um, is there kind of a starting point for you guys? Well, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I originally grew up with the music of the fifties and the sixties. Yeah. And so I was listening to this stuff after it was supposed to be, you know, crazy and offensive and, Oh, and then, and then hearing about how it was perceived. So I think very early on, I was able to get an appreciation for how stuff like, Elvis and how we mentioned before how Bill Haley and stuff like that how the, how the the bar moves you know yeah uh, so I think that that was it for me is that and and stuff like um you know because 
I've mentioned many times on here about how the Beatles is one of the first uh, musical acts I remember listening to and, and their later stuff where they were getting into more, uh, you know, potentially drug induced type of things where people were concerned about that, about their drugs and so forth. Um, so, so, I mean, it's, it's always been for me finding out, for, at least to start off with finding out about offensive stuff after it had been offensive and going, well, that's weird, you know? Yeah. I mean, by the time, and I guess when you were coming up, uh, was about the point where the fifties retro kicked in. Am I guessing this about right? Well, that's possible. But I, I, the reason why I was, I was brought up on that music was because that's just, I mean, uh, that's what my, my, uh, my dad had in his collection. Yeah. And so I would I was he would he would be playing this stuff and I would be oh, that sounds that sounds great. What you know, I was about to say yeah. that sounds fucking great, but I obviously wasn't saying that when I was six. Um but I was you know, that hey, that sounds Dad, great. That's fucking great. Show me no, no. Woodshed. Yeah, Woodshed. What, what now now granted he did have a Richard Pryor album and that's how I discovered David Gardner is when he found out I was listening to Richard Pryor, he said, Uh, not yet. Here, try this instead. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Rob, what 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 have you got? So did you have the beard back then too? Yes. No, that was when I was seven. At six, I hadn't grown the beard yet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow, this is interesting because, yes, the PMRC to a certain extent. Now, I, like Widge, grew up in a house where I had, you know, my brother's old records from the 50s and 60s and his contemporary, like, sort of um, – and again, this is the 70s. So a lot of the, like, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, you know, uh, Supreme, sort of that type of soul music. Mm. And I had, you know, a lot of my – my dad was pretty much being coming of age in the 40s, a lot of that sort of big band type of stuff, which was very, very sort of generic and nice. And then, you know, rock and roll came and bam. Like, even my mom says, I love music, but when Elvis came, I didn't understand it. Right. And she's like, yeah. now I can listen to him and I get it. So I think that's an interesting sort of generational thing. But when you think about, you know, you had Elvis and his hips, you had Tootie Fruity by Little Richard, which at the time completely fucked people up, you know. Yeah. Um, and then when they when everyone figured out that the twist was not about a dance, they they got all bent out of shape. I mean, there's still a lot of records from that era that are really overtly sexual that no one knew at the time, which yeah. I think is just amazing. Um, so you sort of see the roots of that in the fifties, the sixties, it doesn't really happen until you get to, um, I think with what we said with the Beatles and, or at least maybe the who the first couple of who records. Yeah. But I think, I think people really got concerned when the Beatles really sort of, because they were so big, yeah. it's just, you know, and that, that the combination of the Beatles making psychedelic records and the anti-Vietnam movement in this country sort of freaked everyone out. Um, so, but for me growing up in the eighties, I mean, a lot of it, I mean, believe it or not, um, kids back in the old days when, there's a couple of things I remember people just freaking out about, you know, from my adolescence. Uh, believe it or not, when Purple Rain came out, it freaked out a lot of people because it was personally oh, yeah. deemed overtly too sexual. And, um, of course, Madonna. When Madonna came out, oh, my God, it was a big deal, particularly if you were Catholic and had to go to church and listen to it. <laughs> listen to him talk about how horrible Madonna was, right? Um but 
you know, then again, it gets very strange because you have, and I know it's going to sound really weird now because it's, it's almost nothing, but growing up in the Bible Belt, when Boy George broke, that was a big, 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 big uh, fucking deal. No, I mean, uh, it was just like, what the fuck is this? Which, which I don't know if you'll remember this, mm. but uh, uh, Boy George was a guest on the A Team twice. Dude, yes. we have we have posted that a video to the yeah. site. So yeah. No, no, no. I and I know this, but I, I I seem to recall the Huntsville our Huntsville NBC affiliate not airing that episode when it originally aired. Really? It didn't air in St. Louis either. They ran it late at night. Yeah. Really? I don't yeah. remember that. I mean, I, I, I don't. I, doubt, I, I but... seem to recall. I seem to recall that our local, uh, our, our local NBC affiliate did not air that and, uh, at its normally regularly scheduled time. Yeah. Wow. And initially, due to initially due to the androgyny issue. And Dirk Benedict was the only person on the 18 cast that would talk to us. <laughs> really? Yes. Wow. Dwight Schultz is is pretty right. Uh, George Papard is was you know fairly manish mr t was very very um you know christian so that move didn't sit well with you know so putting that on tv was sort of like outlandish and weird and offended a lot of people um when nwa came out i mean the one thing great about when rap broke is that it made all the hell you went through by liking punk rock go away like instantly you know, because, you know, I'm listening to like the pistols and a lot of dead cat. Now the dead Kennedys are also one of those bands that sort of, when they came out, pushed an awful lot of strings. Uh, just by the name alone, the name alone, but also, you know, just by the songs and the fact that Jello was very much an out there in your face guy in terms of his presentation, what he talked about, um, Again, leading to the forefront of the PMRC. At the height of the PMRC uh, in San Francisco, they had an event called the, the they have a thing called the Bammies, and the Dead Kennedys were invited to play the Bammies because they wanted to represent the quote unquote punk scene. And it's a case of when you somebody booked them without really knowing what the hell they they did. You know, oh, they have a great name; it'll be great. You know. Oh shit! So they go on and they do their set. And are universally sort of like um, hammered for being just patently offensive and ruining the Bammies and, you know, just, you know, destroying the youth of America. When, oddly enough, out of all the San Fran other San Francisco musicians that played the Bammies that year, the only person that came to their aid, believe it or not, was Huey Lewis. And Huey Lewis said very aptly, you invited them. What did you expect? And last I heard, it was a free country. Nice. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, you can go back to being offensive. I mean, people found um, Billie Holiday and Josephine Faker amazingly controversial. Well, I yeah. mean, strange fruit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, you know, a lot. There's a Bessie Smith, you know, went toe to toe with the Klan. You know, when she was making records. So you ha you've always had a history of it, but you never really had it sort of uh, resonate until Elvis. I think Elvis is sort of the start, even though there there's, was stuff before that. Yeah. It really resonated when Elvis hit. 
And well, then, I, think, I think Elvis is ground zero, most mostly because you yeah. know he made a lot of TV appearances. Yeah, and I think that also at the time people wanted to rebel, so he got a lot of TV time because they wanted something fresh and something different, you know. Um, and I think that you know, I think the, I think the mid eighties is kind of the kick, the other kickstart for it. I think when you had sort of the Beastie Boys, you had Guns N' Roses, you had Motley Crue, uh, you had Madonna, and you have all these sort of people that were using religious and sexual imagery far more uh, regularly in music. Then you sort of had the the sort of idea that we were living in an apocalyptic culture where the nuclear, nuclear war was inevitable sort of yeah. made everyone feel that they could exp- – there was much more of an emphasis on expressing – resentment, anger, and rage because you had that. I mean, you also had Reaganism and Thatcherism in Britain, so people were pissed off at the government to begin with in the music they were making. But I think that having a sort of culture of that many people angry and disenfranchised just sort of naturally led to people sort of freeing themselves artistically to say what they wanted. And the PMRC was sort of a backlash against that, which, for those who don't know, the PMRC was an attempt to, you know, basically rate music like we have films now and the warning label stickers on albums is kind of a result of the PMRC. Whereas I get what the PMRC wants to do upon hindsight. I get it. Even back then I got what they wanted to do. I just thought that they got, they picked the wrong bands to get upset about, you know, no one's going to worry about wasp if you don't say anything about them. Cause they're going to fucking go away, you know? Um, but Upon hindsight, you know, yes, there's records kids should not listen to. But if you point them out to people, they're going to listen to them. And I think the PMRC kind of realized that. And the PMRC sort of polarized the music industry to a point where bands like Ministry and Joy Division, or uh, Jane's Addiction and Ministry could sort of, to a certain extent, Nine Inch Nails, could make these, like, records that were so, like, aggressive and angry and loud and mad um, and get away with it, you know. And see, that's that's kind of the, one of the next questions I was going to ask, which was as a result of what the PMRC did, um, basically putting you know that black and white, you know, explicit sticker. lyric sticker on yeah. that we've come to know and love and purchase. Hell, I had um, that on a shirt. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Yeah, and um. That kind of gave a thumbs up to a lot of the subgenres that couldn't get play. Yeah. Um, that what you're saying exactly. So that so that you know, Ministry could get a bigger audience, or mm. uh, some of these bands actually did get a bigger audience and and got record deals due to the fact that you know, yeah. hey, we can sell this stuff now because we don't have to worry about you know, there's a sticker yeah. there. We can do that. And you know. One of the reasons rap took off was that you know people told people told white kids they couldn't listen to rap. Well, thank yeah. you very much. You yeah. know, <laughs> uh, which, Russell and, Simmons is taking your money now. Have a great yeah. day. And which so I don't true. know. And Rob, maybe you remember this too. But do you remember uh, these, these 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 church videos where yeah. they they'd play the records backwards? Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and and they'd have all this stuff and. <clears throat> That was supposed to be the list of evil albums that you were supposed to prevent your kids from getting. And yeah. that was like, I know we traded those damn things. And those yeah. are like, that's the list of stuff you need to get. Yeah. So- <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean, it, you you remember it was always the backward masking thing was 
I mean, that was everything from the Beatles and then Led Zeppelin. And then, you know, rap came along and it was like, oh, well, here's something new that we can play backwards and get content out of it. I mean, although, although we mentioned Jeff Lynn before. Yeah. Um, the thing with ELO records, um, they started to say, uh, you know, you could hear things backwards on the records. And then they would start to put sort of stupid, innocuous things in backmasking on the back. Well, on the backwards play of the record. Yeah, well, I mean, the, they knew people were going to look. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that that too. And even then with the Beatles, if if there's certain, uh, there's at least one song where you play it backwards, it's just the regular lyrics. They just turn it around, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's so, so yeah, I, I think it's I think it's great. And kids, kids, look on YouTube because there are these religious uh, videos of these people, um, you know, playing the stuff backwards and talking about how it's, you know, saying uh you know satan washed your socks in a dryer listen for that now and you listen to it and you go i i don't even fucking hear that and i've got a brain that's designed for pattern recognition i don't recognize that elo's face the music is on all and a lot of that happens because you had a an adult base of this country of parents and guardians that were confronted with the rise of mtv music taking a more aggressive tone and the onset of rap all at once it was sort of like an overload of new things, and they didn't know how to react to it. Well, and, and, well, and, Rob, and, the, and the rise of the religious right. Yeah, well, I mean, Rob, I mean, you've got a point there. It's because you've oh. talked about it. That was the beginning of information overload, because if you think about it, all you had to really do, and, and correct me if this is wrong, but unless you had, um, uh, back in the 50s, your music came from radio, and 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 you know before before everybody had a TV in their house, it was radio, and then the movies, and then you had TV added to that. So uh, if and if you only had three networks and you had one yeah. local radio station, um, you could pretty much control what your kids were seeing, right? I mean, is yeah. that, am I am yeah. I remembering that correct? So so then when you start to get MTV and you get multiple radio stations, and then you get the ability to start trading, you yeah. know like you know tapes and stuff yeah um i mean whereas before if you had an album i mean really before what was it real to real i mean was there any there yeah. was no really portable way to trade music before then right before the walkman yeah 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 so so all of a sudden <laughs> it's it, the the uh the dam starts to break i mean now there is no dam and everything's just fucking flooded but i'm saying back then i can see where if you were a parent you had grown up in a controlled environment for the most part and all of a sudden, you're watching your kids being exposed to everything, oh, seemingly everything. Now it is everything. But yeah. I mean, that, 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 I can see where you might react poorly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because so many people got really angry over a lot of stuff. But on hindsight, there's nothing. You have to look at it sort of through the lens of the times. And then, you know, you have the 80s and you move into the 90s and you've got Nirvana and you've got grunge, which sort of people are like, okay, the kids are angry, but this is this is kind of a passive thing. We're okay with it, you know. And and then Kurt died and then everyone went nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in hindsight think, oh, this is this is horrible and but yeah. I I think though, the getting to the core of this conversation, with the rise of video games, the way movies are going, um, and just generally how much our news covers violence more than it used to in the 70s, 80s, and early yeah. 90s that is very hard musically to shock anymore because there's so much more around you that's happening in the world. Uh, 
Well, it sort of desensitizes it to you. Which is interesting because uh, let's just throw this out because I I learned this I, I don't know remember not too long ago because I watched too many documentaries. But what really the entire thing of violent the news being too violent now is is coming back from when it used to be that you would have pictures on the front page of the newspaper of dead mobsters, you know, in yeah. slumped in cars and, yeah. and people in coffins. I mean, that used to be commonplace and then yeah. it went away and now it's just sort of back in its new form. So there's nothing really new under the sun, <laughs> you know? But I mean, it's, it takes an awful been... lot now for people to be shocked yeah. because everything's been done. Well, also because, you know, there's you know we do have a 24-hour news cycle and we have the internet and they gotta we have, fill it with something and they gotta fill it with something and a lot of times it's the same image repeated over and over and over and over and over again or it's different angles of the same thing over and over and over again or it's, let's see let's see the replay of the kid breaking his knee in the uh the uh the ncaa game or it's uh it's it's fuzzy slow ping, motion fuzzy ping pong footage of the killer in germany yeah. where we've everything behind him to the point where you can't actually tell that if we hadn't told you it was a ping pong match, you would have no idea. Exactly. What was I mean, so, you know, and, and anybody wants to explore that further, please watch uh, any wipe show by Charlie Brooker. Um, yeah. But, but uh, we've gotten to the point. I think the last thing that I'd heard a ruckus over was actually an MIA video from a couple of years ago. It was one of those found footage sort, sort of deals, first person perspective sort of deals. Mm. Uh, for Born Free, uh, the the deal with the uh, the 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 serial killers. Yeah, yeah, that's the last real thing that I've heard of. Um, and that's kind of the Brad Paisley thing made me wonder. Okay, so now we're looking at country lyrics for this. Um, but but that that is where I'm getting to. I mean, what how what because I think even when we got to like Manson. Like uh, and, and like the mid '90s, we were sort of there was a big yawn about that at some point. Well, that was a pretty big deal. I mean, because that was sort of the beginning of the ringing back of shock rock. Yeah. But everyone sort of knew that that killed his career because it gave him no artistic merit. It took away any chance he had of being an artist. Yeah. So. Well, I I think I think the the uh, uh the only people that shocked were the the crazy Seven Hundred Club people. Yeah. Because everyone else had seen it before and just went whatever. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, where where is the line right now? I mean, what what does it take besides uh, you know? I, I tell you, here's what I found shocking. I pulled up on Spotify the Wheelhouse, the Brad Paisley album. Yeah. Here's what I find shocking: that there's a track with Eric Idle on it. <laughs> so I'm shocked that I'm shocked that there's an album that has both LL Cool J and Eric Idle on it. I find that shocking. That must be the unifying album of the year, and Prince had nothing to do with it. Why well, I know, but, <laughs> exactly. but but I mean, so I guess that's what I'm because I'm sitting here drawing a blank. What is shocking now? I mean, because even even Rob Zombie puts out an album, and it's just like it doesn't it doesn't make any impact whatsoever, which is probably why he's making films now. <laughs> it's gonna take a lot now. <laughs> and, and and that's I don't know. I mean, we're I mean that that's where I'm. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to think of. Yeah, I mean, I, like I, I, uh, you know, I where post, should you go? I posted it last week because I discovered Ghost BC, which yeah. is, I find hilarious, you know, and, and, and granted, they're not they I, they don't seem to be wanting to be taken seriously anyway. How could you? But but it's like so that this, you know, fake satanic black metal from, yeah. you know, I think really 
Okay, for me, I so think... Do we kind of go sideways now? Is it like, yeah. is Pussy Riot the future? Is that what that is? Yeah, uh, but see, that's only shocking to, to like, you know... Uh, it's only on a one cultural standpoint. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I mean, I, I mean, to me, there there are some frontiers of it. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Ghost BC aside, there's some really fucked up stuff in like a Scandinavian death metal and black metal. Um, yeah. You know, when 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 a fan comes to what was it? I forget what the band. I was in. I think Vice covered this, where a fan showed up and the lead singer like tortured him for three days. I mean, you know, it's like what <laughs> what? So so that's some fucked up stuff. But it doesn't um, make the mainstream. No, it, it it doesn't make the mainstream. But I mean, but but I mean, as far as I mean, does it have to hit the mainstream to be shocking? You know. Well, I think part of the thing, part of it is that it's not considered shocking to us unless we hear about it on a mass well, level. I mean, you, you, I mean, it has you have to be shot. You know, if if uh, you know, if a shock rocker bites the head off a bat in the forest and no one's there to hear hear it, does it make a sound? I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but I no, mean, no, it just means Ozzy's off his meds again. Oh. Not another reality show. Um, <laughs> no, I think you know what I think. This is I just as a sidebar. I really think I would love to see, it, like the the uh, the Nature Channel or whatever it is. Really, why isn't there not a bat documentary hosted by Ozzy Osbourne? Why not? I mean, give <laughs> Ozzy give back. That's all they, I'm saying. They should play that back to back with the uh, the Nature documentaries Leiden did. <laughs> Wow, I need to find those. Are those yes. as awesome as I'm envisioning, or is it? Yes. Okay. Yes, they are. Good. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, guys, where where is it for you? I mean, where? What do you find? What do you think? Or what do you think others will find shocking? Because I mean, we're jaded as fuck. I don't think there's anything that's gonna shock. Uh, well, I'm actually shocked. Um, <laughs> are you shocked that I think you can't be shocked? No. Um, I have to say that, and I, I and I can't really understand why, but it bothers me that I found it offensive. Um, it's probably because the party's involved, but the uh, Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez pictures just really sort of turned my stomach. Really? Uh, like I don't need, I don't care. You know, I don't need to hear about like you know teenage pop stars rolling in the hay. I just don't care. You know, it, it struck all my old men nerves that it shouldn't but you you kids get off my lawn and 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 take your blanket with you yeah but it's probably and make sure that it's washed it's probably because it's justin bieber well <laughs> see see to me i mean well okay but okay here's so here's a question so, like the justin bieber thing that, that's a good point rob because remember he did the uh uh because the Anne frank and frank thing. would have been a fan yeah, that I mean, really pissed me off. That but, was but that was here's, stupid. Here but, is now: Are we simply shocked by stupidity at this point? Yes, because that that's that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, where is his handler? <laughs> I think yeah. we've proven from from the scat reports that we've done on previous shows that he doesn't really have handlers. He just no doesn't. There's no mute button uh, on the Bieber, but um, yeah. there should be. Um, but that's the closest. I mean, I, I even Top Killer when I heard it, I went, "Oh my!" I like when when I heard it was offensive. I heard it, I'm like, "Oh my god!" But you know, if I can listen to Gigi, I mean, the great thing about me with an offensive button is having listened to Wesley Willis and Gigi Allen now. Yeah. At least not that I like Gigi Allen, but having at least been exposed to it. Yeah. There's nothing you can do to shock me anymore after Gigi Allen. There's yeah. Nothing. You got it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I remember. I remember. Uh... At, at Lollapalooza, where Soundgarden played Cop Killer, 
that was that was an interesting environment. Yeah. I I don't know what's next. Um, but I will say this. Um, if you look at if you look at the headlines, if you look at the economic climate that we're in, um, especially when and Rob brings up the Thatcher Reagan years uh in the eighties. Um I I don't know if we're getting back to that, but a lot of people seem angry enough to think that we are. And yeah. that seems to be where where the new frontiers in shock or uh come from is is basically either oppression or you know for yeah. economic economic you know Yeah. You know what I was offended last that's, that's that seems how that how that happened. So I know we're due to get some. Yeah. You know what shocked and offended me? Yes. We are the world. Really? Really? Because it was, because it was people making sort of a crass statement of we're here. And we yeah, we're doing I just something. thought it was really crass. I mean, I, I got what it was. I kind of felt the same way about Band-Aid. Yeah. It's sort of like we're in this comfortable studio for 24 hours. Ooh, this is suffering, uh, but we're going to help you, those little people, the little. But with, with Band Aid, it was never it was never done before, and they made an effort to show what they were fighting with pictures and imagery. So, I, I just I just find all that charity stuff a little just. Yeah. Well, I, I would I, just bug the hell out of me. Well, I I, I they, think I would be I would think I would be uh, I feel a lot better about it, and and maybe a lot of them do this, and I don't know, but it seems to me that you know if if you are a a a wealthy musician, just donate some money and shut up. You know, don't yes. you don't don't do anything else, and don't put out an album trying to like you know get a bunch of people who don't have as much money as you to put up money. You know, yeah. why is that? I don't know. But I mean, you know, but I mean, these days, looking at everything that could bother me, Amanda Palmer should be, if Amanda Palmer happened in the 80s, people would be losing their shit. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's living proof. You know, I mean, we've just sort of been so culturally numbed by it that. You know, I, you know, I am offended by I'm offended by discotech by you two. That 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 offends me. Um. Well, well, here here's what here's honestly what I find offensive, and it, and this this can be applied this can be applied to music as well. I'm sure. Yeah. Is that like and, and it's a it's a movie example, but going to see the Evil Dead remake, and and being exposed to what was it two hours of nothing but stuff that was supposed to shock me and over and over and over again to the point where I was completely numb to it and just didn't give a fuck anymore. Yeah. That to me, I find offensive. It's like, it's like, <clears throat> and, and I'm sure you guys can think of some musical examples of where people are just trying too hard, you know, uh, insane clown posse. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's like, really guys, really, you know, just, just please, uh, there, you know, I'm only, and, and ICP, thing, I'm only trying saying, to be offensive. Oh, I know. And it's sort of like, you're boring. You're yeah. just, it's, it's not even, it's not even, I'm not even sure if it's credible, but yeah. it just seems like, oh, you're, tr oh, oh, insane clown posse, you're trying too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's the thing is it's like, uh, it, you just want to say to them, listen, I'm only saying this because I care, but there's a lot of decaffeinated brands on the market that are just as tasty as the real thing. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, dude, you're 40. You're 45. Take the makeup off. 
Oh. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> I mean, you know, do do that do that Kiss '80s album thing, and then you can put the makeup back on. It's fine. Yeah, because whenever one goes, oh, why did you do that? Put that back on. Exactly. See, no, exactly. see, I I did that when I shaved off my beard. I went, oh, that's why I had the beard, and I yeah, grew it back. Exactly. You have to know what you're missing. You have to know what you're missing, and then you find the missing ingredient, and then you then you can. Then you can put the makeup back on it with confidence. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Once you've done look it up, there's nowhere, there's no, you can't go any lower than that. Exactly. So. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Here, here's here's something else. I find I saw a, a Rolling Stones ad the other day uh, where they had put the Rolling Stone lips on a gorilla, and I found that offensive. And I think that Jane Goodall somewhere is feeling very wretched and sick. Yes. So there you go. There, that, there's where I draw the line, Cuffley. You know, it's, you know, it's more offensive, Wedge. What's that? Where all those lips have been. Wow. And and, and uh, you know, I've <laughs> I listened to the Keith Richards audiobook, so I know some of the answer to that. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. There you go. So uh, so yeah, we are. It's it, it it we don't know what's offensive. We don't know what's coming, but. We'll we'll know it when we see it. We'll know it when we see it, or at least someone will think they will. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, we, uh, ha- if we haven't offended you so far this episode, we're just not trying hard enough. So yeah, we're pretty- we're sorry. We're sorry. Sorry. That would that would put us in the same class as insane pal- clown posse, but we're not wearing makeup. Although you wouldn't know that. Um, we're not wearing clothes either. Well, I wasn't going to reveal that, but it is much cooler in here now. <laughs> Uh, but if you would like, if we haven't offended you, and you would like to support any of the music you've uh, we, we've touched on, or uh, uh, would like to support keeping the lights on for this thing, uh, which how how do we, how does someone go about doing that? Well, it, it's actually incredibly easy. Um, if you're going to buy stuff through Amazon anyway, what we ask is that you go to needcoffee.com/slash/amazon. Um, and if you use that URL, you can bookmark that needcoffee.com/slash/amazon. It takes you to the front page of Amazon, like. You know, you've gone to the front page of Amazon and anything you buy in that session, uh, we get uh, kickbacks for. Uh, and if you if you don't know what you want to buy, you can go to the front page or pretty much any page of Need Coffee. And there's an Amazon search space uh, off to the right hand side uh, that you can buy stuff. And uh, if you look at the Music Monday or Music Tuesday when we run out of time on Monday, um, <laughs> all of that stuff uh, has as buy options for that as well. So, uh, yeah, everything that you do, no matter how small or how large or how many or how few, uh, helps to keep the lights on. So we thank you in advance for your help. And as usual, you can uh, find me on Twitter at the highly creative uh, handle at Tuffley. Uh, Rob, how, how many people go about finding you on, on, on the things? Yelling loudly. Uh, I am on Facebook and Twitter as well, just under my name. Yes, right. and uh, we can find juxtaposition at kdhx.org? Yes. Yes. Yes, and I've tried to put links to uh, all the various places you can find folks uh, in the post. So if you're listening to this yeah. off the site, uh, come to Need Coffee and you'll find uh, links for good stuff. No, we want yep. them to write things as they're listening so that they're paying attention so that we know. Oh, yes, yeah. well, that's true. <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for this edition of The Soundboard. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next time. Bye now. Bye. And stop it. We're out.